Beloved, our call to worship this morning is from Isaiah 54, verses 6 through 10. For the Lord hath called thee as a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit, and a wife of youth, when thou hast refused, saith thy God. For a small moment have I forsaken thee, but with great mercies will I gather thee. In a little wrath I hid my face from thee for a moment, but with everlasting kindness will I have mercy on thee, saith the Lord, thy Redeemer. For this is as the waters of Noah unto me, for as I have sworn that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so have I sworn that I would not be wroth with thee, nor rebuke thee. For the mountains shall depart, and the hills be removed, but my kindness shall not depart from thee. Neither shall the covenant of my peace be removed, saith the Lord, that hath mercy on thee. It is to this God that we come and confess our dependence this morning as we worship him. Our help is in the name of the Lord, who has made heaven and earth, who keeps truth forever and never forsakes the work of his own hands. Grace be unto you and peace from God the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, through the Holy Spirit. Amen. We move from the thick darkness of Sinai to the thick darkness of Calvary. Matthew 27. Matthew 27, verse 39 through 49. Matthew 27, 39. And they that passed by reviled him, wagging their heads and saying, Thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself. If thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise, also the chief priests, mocking him with the scribes and elders, said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. If he be the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe him. He trusted in God, let him deliver him now, if he will have him. For he said, I am the Son of God. The thieves also which were crucified with him cast the same in his teeth. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land unto the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Some of them that stood there, when they heard that, said, This man calleth for Elias. And straightway one of them ran and took a sponge and filled it with vinegar and put it on a reed and gave him to drink. The rest said, Let be. Let us see whether Elias will come to save him. May God give us ears to hear and hearts to understand. As we come to prayer this morning, just an updated thank you note from the Fintelmans. Dear friends and family, the thank you note we wrote for today's bulletin said we are still waiting for the other half of our care package. The rest just arrived, and to our amazement, we realized that we had been waiting for almost all of it. The kids were so excited to receive their gifts, and when they asked who it was from, we were able to remind them of your children with whom they played with a little over a year ago. Tears came to our eyes as we read through the encouraging notes, Thanksgiving cards, Christmas cards, 
and tasted the cookies, reminding us of the church family we have back home. Though it was nearly three months after the official day, today felt much like we were having Christmas with extended family. We thank God for you and love you. Jason, Hannah, Lena, and Judah. May that encourage us this morning. Our text this morning is from Matthew 27, verses 45 through 49. Together with that, we'll consider Lord's Day 16. Lord's Day 16, page 44 in the back of the Psalter. Question 40, why was it necessary for Christ to humble himself even unto death? Because with respect to the justice and truth of God, satisfaction for our sins could be made no otherwise or in no other way than by the death of the Son of God. Question 41. Why was he also buried? Thereby to prove that he was really dead. Question 42. Since then Christ died for us, why must we also die? Our death is not a satisfaction for our sins, but only an abolishing of sin and a passage into eternal life. Question 43, what further benefit do we receive from the sacrifice and death of Christ on the cross? That by virtue thereof our old man is crucified, dead, and buried with him. That, so the corrupt inclinations of the flesh may no more reign in us, but that we may offer ourselves unto him a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Question 44. Why is there added, he descended into hell? That in my greatest temptations I may be assured and wholly comfort myself in this, that my Lord Jesus Christ by his inexpressible anguish, pains, terrors, and hellish agonies in which he was plunged during all his sufferings, but especially on the cross, hath delivered me from the anguish and torments of hell. Well, beloved, as we continue looking at the sufferings of Jesus Christ in these weeks of passion, And the work of the mediator from the Heidelberg Catechism will focus this morning on the sufferings of Christ from the perspective of the last question that we read, the descent of Christ into hell. This phrase from the Apostles' Creed has received a lot of attention throughout church history. In attempting to explain what this statement means, did Jesus literally descend into the place of hell? Because we believe that hell is a real place. Did Jesus descend there upon his death? What does it mean? It's been misunderstood, it's been misapplied. Some read it this way and say that Christ literally descended into hell into the place of the damned, the home of Satan. Others teach 
And we believe that this is the better way to understand this statement, is to take it in its totality. Speaking of Christ's sufferings in their totality. So taking this statement and saying, it speaks of Christ's sufferings in their totality. What Christ suffered was as if he descended into hell. So it's a figurative descent into hell. Not a literal descent, but a figurative descent. A lot of the confusion comes because of the placement of this statement in the Apostles' Creed. As we follow the steps of Christ's suffering. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. If we follow it chronologically, it would make sense that when Christ was dead and buried, he descended to the place of the damned. But if we hold that Christ suffered figuratively, then a placement at the end of the steps of Christ's suffering indicates that it was speaking of Christ's suffering in its totality. What he suffered on the cross, at the height, or rather the depths of his suffering, was hellish agony. And this morning, there's no better way to understand this hellish agony than to consider Christ's word from the cross in Matthew 27:46, "My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me?" It's in those words that we approach the essence of what Christ experienced. It's there that we begin to understand that Christ experienced the essence of hell without having to go there. Our theme then this morning is Jesus hellish agonies. First of all, the darkness of his hellish agonies. And children, as we follow Jesus on the road to the cross, Jesus at this point now is crucified. He's hanging there, suspended between heaven and earth. And surrounding him at the cross are the crowds, the Jews, the religious leaders, the priests, the soldiers. Not one of them is for Christ. They all stand around the cross. They're all reviling Christ. They're all shouting insults at Christ. Even those two thieves on either side of Christ are shouting and reviling Christ and casting insults into His teeth as we read in verse 44. The chief priests and the scribes and the elders who who knew the Old Testament Scriptures who were looking for the Messiah, who saw the Messiah right in front of them in a, in a twist of destiny. They mock the Messiah instead of embracing the One who has come according to the promise of the Old Testament Scriptures. They point out Jesus' lack of power to save Himself. They challenge Jesus to come down from the cross and then they will believe Him. 
show us your power and then we will believe you. Come down and then we will believe you. Even that would not have been enough to convince them that Jesus was the Messiah. They doubt his divinity. They doubt that he is the Son of God. In verse 43, he trusted in God. Let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I am the Son of God. They ridicule his absolute trust in God. No doubt those words torment Jesus as he hangs there, as he experiences the forsakenness of God in the moments that follow. The thieves on the other side of Jesus hurl the same sentiments at Jesus. The Gospel of Luke, reread their words. Lord willing, we'll hear more of this next Lord's Day. But Jesus endures the insulting without a word. Peter comments on these events in his own epistle when he writes, "Who, When he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. So here is Jesus hanging, not uttering a word as a lamb before her shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. He committed himself to the one who judges righteously. And then suddenly we read in verse 45, now from the sixth hour there was Darkness over all the land and to the ninth hour. Darkness descends on all the land, we read. How did that darkness come about? Well, it wasn't just an eclipse of the sun. Because then we would read that the sun was darkened. It was not merely a storm and the, the dark clouds of the storm that covered the sun. It was thick darkness at noonday at the height of the day, there was darkness, a supernatural darkness, a supernatural act of God. Darkness descended on all the land. How extensive was this darkness? Some question whether this was universal around the globe or whether it was localized. The language of all the land would indicate, in a sense, a, a local darkness localized to a particular region. But suffice it to say, it was a very extensive darkness that covered all the land, whether it was Judea, whether it was the land of Israel, whether it was the land surrounding the Mediterranean basin. We don't know exactly how far this darkness extended. That's not the point this morning. The point was that it was not a darkness that only surrounded the cross. It covered all the land. It was at high noon, at the sixth hour to the ninth hour, three hours of thick, impenetrable darkness. A darkness that was divine in origin, divine in significance as the Son of God was nailed to the tree. Why was this darkness significant in the context of the cross? 
Well, first of all, it's significant because it happens in the midst of the railing and the reviling of the crowds, the cursing and the mocking. This darkness in nature is indicative of the darkness of the human heart as it stands before the reality of the cross, before the person of the Messiah. Indicates that these hearts have been darkened and shrouded in unbelief. Those who knew better mocked anyway. It's as, as John writes in John 1.5, The light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehendeth it not. There is intense spiritual darkness surrounding the cross, surrounding the Messiah as He hangs there. Those who gather round Jesus. Spiritual darkness that's not only heard in the voices of opposition to Jesus, but is always operating in the background. Provoking those voices. The unseen enemies of darkness gather around Jesus. The powers of hell are unleashed as Jesus is hanging there in these moments of darkness. Even the comfort and the warmth of the sun is blocked from the Savior's perception as he faces this intense darkness, and spiritual agony. We can't fathom the intensity of the spiritual opposition to Jesus in these moments. To try and get Him to abort His mission to accomplish salvation on the cross. But we can be assured that part of His hellish agonies included this darkness. Spiritual and natural darkness. The powers of darkness laughing at the apparent defeat of Jesus on the cross. But there's more to this darkness. Significant in that it's a sign of God's judgment. If we would build the biblical theology of darkness... Time and again, we'd come to this point, that darkness, this intense, thick darkness is a sign of God's judgment. Matthew 8, 12, we read how darkness itself is descriptive of hell. The children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This three-hour darkness is indicative of, of the darkness of hell. This outer darkness is the place of God's judgment and unrelenting wrath against sin, His justice. The Old Testament speaks of darkness as a sign of God's judgment. Children, you remember in Exodus 10, the plague of darkness. That too was thick darkness. People could not see each other when they were standing close to each other. It was so thick they couldn't see each other. That darkness there in the plague was, was a sign of God's judgment on the Egyptians. A sign of His justice that was coming against the Egyptians for their wickedness. For the refusal of Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go. Isaiah 5.30, we read of the judgment of God coming against His vineyard, against His own people for their wickedness. 
darkness would come upon them. The darkness of judgment through the nations that would come up against Israel and destroy them. Joel 2, verses 30 and 31. Darkness was the signal that the great day of the Lord, the day of judgment, was at hand. Amos 5, 8. The prophet Amos describes the day of the Lord as a day of darkness for the wicked. And so this darkness that descends upon Jesus, upon the cross, upon the land, is the darkness of divine judgment. It's in this darkness that God will transact with the Savior to pour out divine judgment upon Christ for the sins of His people. The darkness is not meant to cover this transaction, but it's meant to tell us the weight and the heaviness of this judgment that fell upon Christ. At the heart of it, it's divinely appointed darkness in which God's wrath would settle on His Son for three hours, resulting in the death of Christ, so that the wrath of God is satisfied, and upon which God can show mercy to sinners. It's in these three hours of darkness that Christ was made a curse for sinners. We experience the curse of the law, as Paul writes in Galatians 3.13. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is every one that hangeth on a tree. It's in this darkness that Christ was made that very curse, by which He sets sinners free this morning by which he reminds believers this morning that it is in that darkness that your life is found. It's in that darkness that we find light and life for our soul this morning. It's in this darkness that Christ experiences hellish agonies of emotion, of body and soul. What can we say this morning about this darkness? can summarize it in this statement. Hell visits Calvary. Hell visits Calvary. Darkness. But it gets worse. Desertion. Desertion. We have no record of what Christ experienced except for what He summarizes Himself in the words of Matthew 27, 46. A clear and succinct summary of what He experienced in those moments. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is to say, my God, my God, why hast Thou forsaken me? The darkness of nature gives way Surrounding Christ gives way to the darkness of soul within Christ as He's suspended on the cross, rejected by the people, rejected by the religious, rejected by the soldiers, rejected by the thieves. And now rejection of all rejections, He's rejected by God Himself, by His Father. Beloved, let's remember that as we stand before the cross and we hear these words, 
These are words of mystery. We can only begin to scratch the surface of what they mean. The reality and the depth of experience contained in these words. Only Christ could experience. Let's stop and prayerfully consider these words this morning. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? There's a complaint in these words. A complaint that is wrenched from the depths of the soul of Christ as he transacts there for sinners, as God moves against him, as the curse falls upon him, a lament. That's how we need to understand these words, not complaining against God for for what God is doing, but a lament. A lament focusing on something specific in the experience and the fact of Christ's suffering. Something that is unique to his suffering as he lays himself on the altar of the cross. A lament of the reality of what he experienced. It's a window in which we can see this morning the depths of what Christ has undergone. He laments the fact that he's forsaken by God as he cries out with a loud voice, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? A lament does not ascribe blame to God. A lament does not ascribe blame to God. What a lament does is it states the facts of a particular affliction or trial. Many of the Psalms are laments. On the face of it, laments seem daring in speaking to God in this way. But a lament is never a challenge to God. It's simply a pouring out of the heart before God of the the statement of fact of what a soul is, is going through. That's what we have here. A complaint, a lament of Christ. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Jesus takes up the words of Psalm 22, verse 1. He laments the sense of forsakenness that he, he goes through during the lowest points of his sufferings. This complaint arises out of his condemnation. Because at the heart of it, that's what his forsakenness is, isn't it? It's more than just an experience. It's an actual fact that Jesus is forsaken by his Father. The Father hides his face from Christ. Where Christ experiences in his human nature the absence of the favorable presence of God in order to atone for sin. Hellish agony. No word of love from heaven. No affirmation that Jesus is the beloved Son of God all throughout Jesus' ministry. We have that, don't we? At His baptism, the voice from heaven, the Spirit descending like a dove, the voice, this is my beloved Son. At His transfiguration, this is my beloved Son. But at the cross, all we hear is the lonely cry. My God, my God, why hast Thou forsaken me? 
cry from his disfigured body, racked by pain. A cry from his tortured soul as he experiences the curse of sin, the guilt of sin, the agonies of the abandonment of God in these moments. Beloved, this gets us to consider what hell is, the absence of God's favorable and comforting presence. But it's not just the absence of God's favorable and comforting presence that Jesus is experiencing here. It's not just the absence of something, it's the fullness of the wrath and the justice of God that Jesus experienced in these moments. Unmitigated wrath, a wrath that would not lessen until Jesus died and the payment was made. An utter destitution, a desertion, a loneliness that only Christ could taste as He went the way of the cross for His people as the mediator. It's a rhetorical question that Christ asks in this lament. Why hast thou forsaken me? Why this isolation? He knows He's committed himself to the awful realities of the cross, satisfying the justice and the wrath of God. To descend into these hellish agonies, to experience isolation from heaven, desertion by God for three hours, rejected by earth, abandoned by heaven in his human nature. And yet in this lament, he never failed to cling to God. My God, he says, my God. His faith did not fail. He knows why he's here. He continues to cling to God in the midst of this abandonment of his father's favor. The words of Job regain a new reality this morning. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Though heaven has forsaken him as part of his hellish agony of, of soul, his, his faith does not falter. He clings to God in the midst of this trial, the greatest trial that any human being has ever undergone. He owns God as his own. He clings to God in the intensity of this trial. Listen to the words of Calvin on this point that summarize beautifully how Christ's faith continue, continues unabated. Before stating the temptation of being forsaken, he begins by saying that he betakes himself to God as his God. And thus by the shield of faith he courageously expels that appearance of forsaking which presented itself on the other side. In short... During this fearful torture, his faith remained uninjured so that while he complained of being forsaken, he still relied on the aid of God. Jesus experiences hellish agony. He descends into hell. Hell visits Calvary. Jesus' faith continues unabated. 
What do these hellish agonies do for you this morning? They put things into perspective, don't they? Put your and my sin in perspective. The awful enormity and the ugliness of our rebellion and unbelief against God. That brought hell to Calvary. That caused Christ to be abandoned on the accursed tree. As Jesus hangs there, he hangs there as a substitute for sinners. Hell visits Calvary. So it never has to visit you. Christ hung there. Abandoned. Deserted. Alone. So that sinners this morning can be drawn into fellowship with him. You think of the cross this way. Does the cross bring you to your knees this morning in confession? That it is my sin that has brought hell to Calvary. It is my sin for which Jesus suffers this desertion. It puts sin in perspective puts grace in perspective too, doesn't it? The enormity and the beauty of grace. That Christ was offered in exchange for sinners. There's no better summary of what went on here than what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21. For he who knew no sin was made to be sin so that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. In these moments of darkness, Christ was made to be sin, numbered with the transgressors, counted as a sinner. And the justice and judgment of God. The great exchange takes place at the cross. Grace displayed here. Not just hellish agony, but in the midst of that hellish agony that Christ carried, we see the supreme act of love of the substitute as he endured the wrath of God. The greatest act and expression of love that could ever be expressed is the wrath of God pressed down on Christ in the place of sinners. This is the perspective that we need to walk away with this morning. The enormity of our sin, the enormity of grace, 
in these words, in the fact of the experience of Christ. Because it's in that act, it's in those words that there's deliverance this morning. Deliverance for sinners. As this cry is wrenched from the soul of Christ, there are those surrounding the cross who hear it, who make a further mockery of Christ. Verse 47, some of them claim that he's calling for Elijah to come and rescue him. They misunderstand his word from the cross. One of them runs and fills a sponge with sour vinegar to help Christ in his thirst. Others say that he should be left alone to see whether Elijah would indeed come and rescue him from the cross. Their thought of deliverance for Christ was delusional. They stood unmoved at the foot of the cross, at the sight of the forsaken Savior, as he cried out in agony of soul. In the darkness that surrounded him. They misunderstood and they mocked. They went away unaffected by this momentous statement of Jesus' hellish agony. They did so at their peril. They misunderstood the deliverance that Christ came to offer. They left him to try and to deliver himself or for Elijah to come and deliver him. But if that would happen, salvation would be in jeopardy. The price would not be paid. Their jesting is heartless. Points yet again to the reality of the sinfulness of sin. The unbelief of the human heart even in the face of of Calvary, standing right there. Children, I don't know about you, but when I was growing up, I thought if I could just be around Jesus, I would, I would believe in Him. If I could just see the cross, if I could just see Jesus dying there, for sure I would believe. But you know what? There were people who were right there at the cross. In fact, the majority of them saw Jesus. And they refused to believe. So even if you can't see Jesus, you're called to believe in him. Because the Word of God proclaims Him this morning. It's a warning that if you're unsaved, that you will experience the hellish agony that Jesus experienced except for eternity. It's a warning for those who stand before the cross this morning with the same heart of unbelief. Maybe you're not showing the same actions as these people did in regards to Jesus. 
But a heart of unbelief today is just as wretched and God-dishonoring as a heart of unbelief of those who stood at the foot of the cross that day. A rejection of Christ is a rejection of Christ. No matter in which period of history you're living. Because the reality is that if you're not believing in Christ, your heart is in the same place. Because you're not seeing the one who is standing between you and God. The one who has offered himself as as the Savior of sinners. The grim reality is that when you stand without Christ, you stand exposed to the very real possibility of being forsaken by God. Forsaken by God, the absence of God's favor. The reality of the presence of God's wrath and justice and judgment. If you do not repent and believe in Christ, if you do not bow the knee now, the day will come where you will bow the knee and confess that Jesus is Lord, whether you want to or not. Christ's hellish agonies lasted three hours for salvation. But if there's no repentance from your heart this morning, if there is no trusting in Christ, if there's no casting yourself on Christ this morning, there will be an eternity of hell. An eternity of hell. Never-ending wrath. Never-ending torment. Never-ending weeping and gnashing of teeth. This cry of Christ from the cross signals to you that there's still time. You're alive this morning. The gospel is coming to you this morning. Today is the day of salvation. Harden not your hearts, the scriptures tell you. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, there is hope in this cry. More than that, there is hope in this Christ who suffered the reality of this desertion. There's no need for you to spend eternity in hell. There's hope in the Savior. The word to you this morning then is this, flee. Flee from the wrath to come. To the one who has endured wrath on behalf of sinners just like you. There's refuge in him this morning. Deserted. So you don't have to be. A word of warning to the unsaved, to the unconverted, to the unbelieving. But these words of Christ, 
and the reality of his suffering are also a ray of, of hope and a balm to, to believers this morning. Lord's Day 16 highlights several applications that are worth noting, worth meditating on, and worth resting in for the week ahead. I'll summarize them in three words. The first is satisfaction. Not in the sense of feeling satisfied and full. But when we understand Christ's hellish agony suffered in the cross, the abandonment of God, it reminds us that satisfaction for your and my sin could be made in no other way than for Christ to humble himself to this death, to this suffering, to this desertion. Question and answer 40 makes clear the wrath and justice of God required the death of the Son of God. Christ was rejected by the world, deserted by God, and being made a curse for sin. His desertion by God holds forth that word of life again. Christ's hellish agonies form the heart of the gospel this morning where your life is found, believer. So as he's lifted up this morning in his desertion, in his agony, keep looking to him. Look to him again if your focus has been taken off of him this past week. In his desertion, he made that final transaction to pay for your sin so that he cried out, it is finished. Your sin has been paid for. Satisfaction has been made. The justice of God has been satisfied. Don't ever move beyond this satisfaction. Let's learn afresh this morning. There's only one way that we can live. And it's to live out the sacrifice of Christ. That's where life is. That's where your life is. Puts to death your own righteousness. Puts to death your own efforts. You bring to God again and say, look what I've done, Lord. It's only the satisfaction of Christ that has satisfied divine justice. The second word is sacrifice. What does Christ's sacrifice have to do with your sacrificing yourself? Listen to the answer of question 43. That by virtue thereof, of Christ's sacrifice, our old man is crucified, dead and buried with him, so that, that so the corrupt inclinations of the flesh may no more reign in us, that we may offer ourselves unto him a sacrifice of thanksgiving. The satisfaction of Christ leads to our sacrifice of thanksgiving. This takes place within the life of sanctification, of of holiness. Putting to death, putting the sword through the inclinations, through the desires of the old man. However, those desires manifest themselves in your life. Every believer has their own unique struggles. But 
But every believer, in light of the satisfaction of Christ, is called to put to death those desires and inclinations of the flesh. Why? Because if we believe in Christ, we are in union with Christ. We have been crucified with Christ. This is Romans 6 language, isn't it? Romans 6, 6 states, knowing, that that, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. Paul continues later on in that chapter, therefore we ought to reckon ourselves dead to sin. Reckon is a term of accounting. To count ourselves dead to sin. When those desires, when those inclinations come, we'll be able to put our foot down, so to speak, and say, I am dead with Christ. I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but He lives within me. I will not give way to this desire. That is sacrificing yourself on the basis of the satisfaction of Christ. The satisfaction that he has accomplished by suffering this hellish agony. And so this is where sanctification begins this morning. Union with Christ at Calvary. He took your hellish agony so you can begin to live for him. And become like Him. Sanctification begins firmly at the foot of the cross where sinners are justified in the sight of God on the basis of the satisfaction of Christ alone. And so we can never move beyond this satisfaction. The life of sanctification a life of offering ourselves as sacrifices of thanksgiving, we're always going back to the cross. Not to be justified again, but to be reminded of our justification, of our union with Christ, of the power and the life that is there to enable us, to empower us for a life of sacrificial thanksgiving. Sanctification is hard. But we're not left alone in the life of sanctification. We draw life from the satisfaction of Christ. We draw comfort and assurance from what Christ has suffered as we see in the third word, sustaining or being sustained. As Christ suffered hellish agony and desertion, what practical effect does that have in a life of sanctification and sacrifice? It reminds us the price has been paid. But listen to the words of the catechism, the last question and answer. In the moments of my greatest temptations, 
I may be assured in holy comfort myself in this, that my Lord Jesus Christ, by His inexpressible anguish, pains, terrors, and hellish agonies, in which He was plunged during all His sufferings, but especially on the cross, hath delivered me from the anguish and torments of hell. This word for temptations, it's a broad term as it's used in the epistle of James. Speaking not just the temptation of sin, but trial as well. The trials of a life of sanctification. The hellish agonies of Christ. The cry of desertion that came from Christ sustains believers in the moments of their greatest temptations. The moments of their greatest trials, we can be assured and comforted. Temptation is breathing heavily behind you, trying to catch up to you, trying to get you to fall again. Keep this in mind. He suffered hellish agony for me. If my sin cost him that, I can't go back. But I can stand firm. And I can flee from every appearance of evil. Helps us understand the cost of sin. The hellish agony of Christ is what delivered us from sin in the first place. Delivers us from hell. The moments of our greatest trials. Many of us are going through intense trials. What may seem to us even hellish trials. Anguish mind of heart, pain-racked bodies. Christ endured it all and more to remind you, to comfort you, to assure you. If you're a believer undergoing these intense trials this morning, that those trials are not bring you to hell. They're to bring you to the foot of the cross again this morning. To see the Savior. To be reminded of what He's endured. Now this morning, you can take up the cross and follow Him again. Provides hope. provides hope. In the midst of this greatest trial of Christ under the wrath of God, His faith sustained Him. We've seen that. My God. My God. There are times in the Christian life where it might seem that God has withdrawn Himself entirely. We need to remember that 
The only one who experienced that in its reality was Christ. And so we can cling to God in the moments of our greatest trials and temptations. Because God is faithful. He's not forsaken us. Only because He has forsaken Christ. Just reminded of the words of the form for the administration of the Lord's Supper. It's in that second column of the second of the second page that we read the day of the Lord's Supper. He was forsaken so that we might never be forsaken. Jesus knew on the other side of this hellish agony was victory. That's what he holds out to you this morning, believer. Victory on the other side. He was heard and that he feared. We'll read that tonight from Hebrews. Christ was deserted in his greatest trial so that you and I might never be deserted in the moments of our greatest trial. So how do you think? What do you think of Christ's desertion? Is it your life Is it your strength to continue on this morning? He descended into hell. He suffered hellish agonies, enduring the wrath and the justice of God to give life to sinners, to sustain his own in that life. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that thou wilt take thy word and use it this morning to encourage and to convict, to save and to strengthen. That we would see none but Jesus, the one who is forsaken, forsaken of God. Lord, we can't fathom it. We can't comprehend it. We must believe it. And so we're being tested this morning, particularly those who are going back and forth in their minds, counting the cost of following Thee. Help them to see, Lord, that it's worth it. For Christ has paid it all. Draw them, save them. Be with those, Lord, who are enduring trials, intense trials, trials of relationship, trials of mind, of body, of 
heart. Experiencing darkness of the soul. Help them to see light this morning. Not just any light, but the light. The light that is Christ. Pray for those who are experiencing temptations. Strong temptations. Lord, preserve them. That they would sing with the psalmist. O Lord, preserve me, for in thee alone my trust has stood. That they would take up their cross. That they would count themselves dead to sin. No longer satisfy the cravings of the flesh. Live lives of holiness to thee. We thank thee, Lord, for... Shirley Stouchestyke's safe arrival again home. Thank thee for her presence here this morning. Be with her, Lord, as she has various appointments with the oral surgeon. Please help her and strengthen her as well. Bless us now, we pray, as we turn to family living, to catechism, to confession of faith class. Bless all these means of instruction, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.